I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shadow Paxson. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we talk about our week in review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode, move on to a main event, which is a main topic of discussion, or a main review, and then finish up with film faves. Our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, typically marching back through time. In this episode, our main event will be a main review of Damien Chazelle's latest film, First Man, starring Ryan Gosling. Our film phase is going back on track, marching through time, with what, Shanna? With 1991, so think Terminator 2, My Girl, Bob the Bride, just to give you a... Things of that nature. So, uh, before we get started, though, I do want to point out, in case anybody else gets ahead of us, last episode we did our favorite remix, and we set out all these boundaries and rules that helped us create our list of remakes. One of those rules was... Rules. Oh, there were rules. <laughs> One of those was that we need to be mindful that there are several movies that are other adaptations of novels. So we, in the episode, went through all this explaining, what our boundaries were, and then what happened? Shanna, you started off with two movies that are based on novels. Now, in fairness to you... It's uh, always my fault. Let the right one in. All the time was remade as Let Me In, which I made was the second film on your list. And that film was less a, another adaptation of the novel as much as a remake of a foreign film. It was in the, the, the inspiration of that movie was really like, hey, there's this really successful foreign film in Sweden. It's got a lot of buzz. Let's remake it in the States. So... That one gets a pass, but your first movie that you mentioned was Carrie, which is, of course, the Stephen King novel. So that was a little bit of a cheat. But I think, like, again, in fairness to you, I think it was actually just really exemplary of how challenging this list really was uh, for you to create. That it was hard to avoid completely uh, something like Carrie, right? This was a very difficult list for me. I do not wish to do it again. <laughs> so we won't at least for another 10 years when another several remakes has been compiled and aren't there a bunch of remakes coming out in the next year i i have no doubt uh and very and, helpful well i don't know <laughs> off the top of my head but i have no doubt that's the case but at any rate uh, enough of that just wanted to throw it out there in case anybody's going to push up their glasses and fire up their laptops uh, we know and we apologize moving on to our week in review. Shanna, you didn't really get much opportunity to watch much on your own, did you? I am currently watching The Americans, but do not wish to discuss it until I've caught up to the last season that aired. They're about to do their final season, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I don't want to say anything about it, at least until I finish that. Gotcha. And I'm gotcha. so close. Actually, you came home at a very important moment. Of so course. I'm at like, least oh, you do. damn it. <laughs> yeah. So I somehow squeezed in several things this past week, including stuff watching with you. But we'll get to that in a moment. I'm going to blow through a few different movies here that I watched. 
I wanted to speak to. First of all, Apocalypse Now. We haven't Perfect talked to... for Halloween. <laughs> Real have... life horror. Hold on. <laughs> we haven't talked about Apocalypse Now on this podcast yet, I don't believe. This is, of course, the 1979 Francis Ford Coppola film with a huge cast of established and up-and-coming actors, including Martin Sheen, Harrison Ford, Robert Duvall, Larry Fishburne is in the film. Uh, you have, of course, Dennis Hopper, Marlon Brando, etc., etc., etc. I just want to say, like, I, I rewatched this film, showing it to a friend of mine, a past guest on the show, Alan, who was on our Fast and Furious episode, and I was really struck by this being like the fourth or fifth time I've seen it this time, like how much of a masterpiece that film truly is. It's visually got so many incredible stunning shots in it. The use of music in the film with the, the end by the doors, the ride of the Valkyries, so many other things is probably some of the best use of music in a film ever. It's got, of course, famous lines in it to see those lines actually in context is is really great but there's sequences in here that on their own as a sequence they are incredible that that one person was able to orchestrate such as like when martin sheen's crew is meeting up with uh, colonel kilgore lieutenant colonel kilgore's unit as well uh, played by robert duvall that entire sequence of chaos and everything that's going on on screen behind the camera around the camera everything sound design wise and the, just the production and everything is just uh, um, extraordinary so apocalypse now is absolutely an extraordinary film it is i believe a masterpiece shanna you were introduced to this movie six years ago did you have anything you wanted to add i remember thinking it was a fantastic film but one that's kind of on the same level as Shinda's List for me, where you watch it every once every eight years or once every, you know, when you have to, like mm -hmm. when you're introducing it to someone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love the, the color symbolism. Mm -hmm. We spoke about that. It, all the colors were pretty toxic, mm. like how saturated they were, which was really beneficial to the film and helping its story. And I think just a little off the topic of the actual film i think there's certain quotes that you need to teach children and one of them is the horror because they can be used very effectively in games of uno and okay. <laughs> like if you do something in uno and you must be friends with the horror the five-year-old looks at you and says shannon you brought the horror it's really fun so i recommend teaching that quote so yeah apocalypse now also uh, uh speaking to the visuals it has some really great i don't know you know the better the phrase better than i do but when it has um two different images composing uh or juxtaposing against each other it's um, like they're on top of each other kind of yeah that's called a double exposure it is double exposure okay mm -hmm. i didn't want to use that term improperly mm -hmm. there's a lot of that going on with wind like for example the opening has a, uh, a ceiling fan and ex scenery of Vietnam with napalm explosions and helicopters going across the screen and him laying in bed. He's clearly got PTSD and everything. That's just really, really awesome. So awesome stuff. I could go on for another 20 minutes, but I will not. Let's move on. Apocalypse Now 
Now we will uh, go off into a little bit of a Halloween flavor of the Weekend Review. Got a few Halloween-themed films to, to talk briefly about. First is Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which is a 1948 film, very fun, considered one of the greatest comedies ever made, certainly considered one of the best Abbott and Costello movies ever made. It's a lot of fun because the film actually has Bela Lugosi as Dracula, Bela Lugosi who played Dracula in 1931, and Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. Lon Chaney, of course, played Wolfman in the original uh, Universal Studios film. So both those characters are in it. Frankenstein is in it, but really, like, he's not in it till technically the last six minutes of the film. So basically, you could argue the film should be Abbott and Costello meets Wolfman and Dracula because those are the two characters they're dealing with through most of the 80-minute runtime. But it's a lot of fun. It's very silly. Lou Costello was superb at the scared at the frightened response you know where he sees something really scary and he's suddenly like making noises you know yeah. and whining you know and making really funny faces so you know that's like terrifying sort of sort of yeah so he's hilarious in it of course bud abbott was the straight man kind of like oh you're being silly you know kind of thing but it's a delightful film. I believe it's actually, it and a couple other Abbott and Costello films are available to stream on uh, Amazon Prime, if I'm not mistaken. So see if you can hunt that down, because it's definitely worthwhile. It is a lot of fun. What's amazing is uh, Abbott and Costello, they were a partnership. They made films for 16 years, and in that time made 36 films. 36 films in 16 years. That is That's insane. Not only that, but their collective adjusted box office is like $2.5 billion or something like that, which easily must put them in the top 10 film franchises of all time. That much output, that much gross, clearly they are popular, but how many people these days have actually seen a single Abbott and Costello film? It is startling. I have not. See? So I highly recommend checking out Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Next, I watched my Blu-ray, 35th anniversary, I think, Blu-ray of Halloween, 1978's Halloween, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. I saw it with commentary, because I've seen the film plenty of times. I was like, I'm going to do something different. So I watched it with commentary with John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis. That movie made me afraid of bushes. <laughs> okay. I have no interest in going down a sidewalk that has bushes. I, I will cross the road. know exactly what you mean. I will cross the road. <laughs> or I will turn around. There is, if, no, if, thank you. If you've seen the film, you know exactly what Shannon is referencing. If you haven't seen the film, my goodness, what are you doing? You really need to check this film out. Unless because, you want to not be afraid of bushes. Well, it, if you, it is one of the greatest horror films ever made. It's certainly the greatest slasher film ever made. Maybe next to Psycho, you could say. But uh, it's really interesting listening to this commentary with uh, Carpenter and Curtis because Carpenter, he could barely remember anything. Several times, Jamie Lee Curtis will be like, whose was this? Or do you remember that? And he'll be like, no. <laughs> you know, other times he will remember something. But Jamie is really a delight to listen to because she is so much in awe of this movie on a technical level. So many times she'll point out how 
what's great about this film is how long a shot will be held much longer than a modern horror, horror film would mm. hold a shot it's like slower isn't it sort of i mean like it'll actually hold on a character doing nothing more than walking you know and she's she's clearly in love with this film and honestly even john carpenter to a to an extent gets a kick out of her absolutely like just heaping praise on like oh my god that's so scary or oh my god (laughs) that shot it's such a great shot you know Sometimes he's kind of like laughing at her, like you know. Is she a fangirl? Well, if she thinks something scary is like, uh, oh god, you're a wuss, <laughs> you know. But uh, she is not a fan of horror. She absolutely refuses to watch modern horror films, which is funny because she's been in a few. But <laughs> it's it's definitely worthwhile if you're a fan of Halloween. It's worth uh, kicking on this audio track if you can. Uh, and even, you get some in- extra insight too. I would even listen to the audio track. I, I've been following. I follow her on Instagram, and she just did a lovely post. You know, getting excited about how well the sequel's doing, the past weekend, and mm-hmm. she's just. I really like her. It's remarkable how how much she appreciates this film and not just because of it it gave her a start you know you you kind of can wonder easily like what is it about this movie this horror film this indie slasher film that you appreciate so much and you kind of get a good picture of that by listening to our commentary one thing that is not cleared up for me before i move on is you have michael myers leaving the asylum making his way to this town and he is clearly intent on, he is, for whatever reason, obsessed and focused on Laurie Strode, okay? He kills, he goes through and kills her friends, but he even before that, he will be outside her window watching her in various locations. So it's like, okay, why is he obsessed with her? If John Carpenter conceived of this as just its own story, originally, right? There is nothing in the story that indicates there's a relationship between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. So the one thing I can't figure out is why does Michael Myers focus on her in particular? So if you have any answers to that, email the gibsonreview at gmail.com. But that's my one like sticking point after watching it after all these years. So that's Halloween. The uh, commentary with Jamie Lee Curtis and... John Carpenter, I recommend checking that out. Lastly on my end is Dracula, the original 1931 film starring Bela Lugosi. Great film. If you haven't seen it, this is the definitive Dracula film. This is the one where he has the accent and all that came from this, right? This is the the universal monster film. It's directed by Todd Browning, who also made a great horror classic called Freaks. If you haven't seen that, hunt it down. There's a couple things that is worth mentioning about this film. Really briefly, first of all, there's three key performances that I think really are standouts and hold the film together uh, the most. First of all, of course, Bela Lugosi as Dracula. He's, he's iconic, right? He is the Dracula when you think of Dracula. Some people think of Christopher Lee from the Hammer films, but Bela Lugosi kind of did is the one that originated it, right? The other two, I'm going to see if I can get their names here to give them due credit, 
is, uh, first of all, the guy who plays Renfield, who becomes basically Dracula's slave. He is a guy who starts out as you know, with a performance that is kind of this boring dude, and he ends up becoming a total creep with this really creepy laugh on this. Eh, 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 eh. Oh, you know? I love that. <clears throat> he is great in this movie. His name is Dwight Fry. I'm not otherwise familiar with him, but his transformation from one to another is great. And then lastly, I think it's worth mentioning Edward Van Sloan, who played Van Helsing, who's an older guy, but he has some really awesome face-off scenes in a drawing room with uh, Dracula, you know? That you just watch this guy's face and you believe he's the only one that has the willpower to resist Count Dracula. And uh, it's it's pretty cool stuff. You know, it's, it's a much... If you haven't seen 1931's Dracula, be warned, it is a slower-paced film than you might be used to, especially for horror. Uh, but it is a really great introductory piece if you want to get your kids into horror. That is a great way to dip their toe in to the genre. Because it really isn't uh, really isn't scary by today's standards, but it has all the trappings and, and, and elements of horror in it. So that's 1931's Dracula. Let's move on, Shanna. We have one other Halloween-themed movie. And to speaking watch. of vampires, yes, we're talk about Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Yes. Now this she is really is, exciting. It's an F-rated film. She is credited as a writer with Eric Raid. That's right. Um, however, I was excited to be able to get a copy of this because apparently it's completely out of date, uh, out of print, I mean. And a used copy typically goes for like 50 bucks of this Blu-ray. Uh, so we have it. We didn't have to pay that much. I won't say how much we had to pay or where, but man, it's awesome that we have it. And it's otherwise kind of hard to find uh, to stream, too. I, mean, I think maybe you can rent on Amazon. But at any rate, basically, who's the, who's the, uh, main, who's the main actor in it? Adrian uh, Pazdar. Adrian Pazdar. He's a guy who gets sucked into, uh, no pun intended, this group of Brady vampires. Brady. <laughs> right? That's the basic plot. And he's trying to prove himself worthy. Meanwhile, his, his dad and sister... Are looking for him because uh, he's gone is missing. Like Ten years old. Or yeah, something. yeah. Very young. So Shanna, uh, you you've seen Catherine Bigelow's films, Point Break. You've seen Zero Dark Thirty. I think you might have seen another one. Oh, Detroit. What did you think of her take on the vampire tale in her second film? So I haven't seen a lot of different vampire films, but the one that I live religiously by uh, for vampire law, I guess, is True Blood. But that's a television show. That spanned for about seven seasons. I thought that Near Dark did a great job showing the different, a lot of different things about vampires, but it also humanized them. You know, we're not going to see them do fancy things like we do in shows like True Blood or Vampire Diaries or Twilight. Like, for example, what? Oh, okay, we're going to talk about that. So these vampires, they cannot at all be in the light, and they will fry up mm -hmm. very, very quickly. Traditional lore? Traditional, yeah, but then you've got something like Twilight where they just... Not traditional so, at all. Not yes. traditional at all. <laughs> but it's there, and we don't have actual vampires, so we cannot actually get true facts. Do so, we have to acknowledge it's there? Oh, my God. Well, the thing is, something like True Blood, if they how their law works is if they even just stay up 
they start bleeding. Oh, fascinating. So I think that it's interesting to mention that. Uh, another thing is they can't fly. They don't have super speed. Mm-hmm. They're actually quite... Quite frankly, they are the flimsiest vampires I've ever seen. <laughs> Especially, but they're I'm... strong. Are they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, somewhat. I mean, they're able to hit a guy across a room very easily. Uh, yeah, whatever. I mean, are you able to hit a guy across the room very easily? I don't know. I've never tried. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I feel like they don't have much going for them. And um, what was nice is they showed how painful the transform and confusing and disorientating Mm. the transformation can be so that was cool Mm -hmm. they also showed what is it like and what frustration goes with a sort of 12 year old vampire oh right right right. i don't know 300 years old technically and this predates i i think he's did um, you say 50 years old i think he's from like world war one or something era a child correctly yeah but at any rate he predates Kristen dunce child vampire from interview with vampire yes well it's very interesting because you can tell the poor guy he'd obviously just hit puberty Mm -hmm. and the poor thing didn't complete puberty before being transformed Mm. and so it's like oh that poor kid yeah (laughs) so i think it's really important to show that yeah uh fyi and true blood child vampires cannot exist they are to be destroyed immediately Mm. uh because of they haven't developed their brain and just because they get turned into a vampire doesn't mean their brain fully develops so you're talking about emotional outburst emotional stability so there were a couple of interesting elements i I didn't like how weak seemingly the the female character was that's jenny wright there's two female characters to be clear jenny wright and jeanette goldstein right and jeanette goldstein she was strong and She's the awesome. mother figure, quote yeah, unquote. Yeah, so she's, she's got a whole bunch of strengths and power happening there. Jenny Wright was kind of like, it took her forever to do the right thing. She's kind of the, the teenage daughter figure of the family, so to speak. With no rebelling and no opinions of love. I thought she was a pretty weak character. Mm. That's just how I feel about it. And it annoyed me. Because it annoyed me in that I expect... Once you turn a vampire, you're going to learn very quickly how to stand up for yourself. Mm. Because if you look at all the different vampire things out there, if they're in a pack, like they get ruled over or they learn how to stand up for themselves. And she was not. Mm. And so that irritated me. Mm. Although it was interesting to see that challenged. Very cool. I'm just going to say really briefly what makes this movie stand out is its melding of horror and western because it is set while in contemporary 80s it is actually set in the south and it has kind of uh, a little bit of the the cowboy flavor to it it's kind of cool bill paxton by the way we've gone six minutes we haven't even mentioned bill paxton i think he's the highlight of the whole film he's the wild and crazy vampire and he is a blast. I, I think it's a shame that people didn't, when he passed away, didn't actually mention this movie in, in uh, tribute to him because it, it's one of his most fun performances. And one last note, interestingly enough, Catherine Bigelow was married to James Cameron at this time. James Cameron had made Aliens the year before. Catherine borrowed three of his cast ma- members, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein for this film 
and it's a lot of fun actually seeing them in, in, in a vampire film. So if you can, check out Near Dark. It's kind of one of these lesser-known films, and it's uh, really kind of cool to check out, especially knowing Catherine Bigelow as she is now. Our next film is Lady Gaga, Five Foot Two. It's available on HBO. No, Netflix. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's a Netflix film. Oh, I'm just obsessed with HBO. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so it's on Netflix, and it's going behind the scenes as she prepares for the release of her new album and prepares for the Super Bowl halftime show. Which album was that? Oh, it was Joanne, right? Joanne, yeah. yes. So it was yeah. different to her other work. Yes, right, right, right. Did you have any thoughts about this documentary? I loved this documentary. In the beginning, they're, they're following her around, and there's a bunch of balloons, and they ask why they're balloons. And it turns out that that was the week that A Star is Born got greenlit. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. It was very raw. It, it was very honest, I felt, it, because it was right there with her the whole time, and she was talking to the camera, um, and she was talking to people who she was interacting with, and she was kind of sharing a lot about herself. We, I liked seeing the preparation and how hard she works, because often, at least in my mind, I think, you know, somebody else does all the preparation and all the hard work, and they just hand music to people and, like, music, uh, vocalists and things like that, and there you go, get this done. But she's actually working incredibly hard. She's doing a lot of stuff from scratch. And I just find that very interesting. And, and you also get to see her go through a lot of physical pain. She broke her hip, and that's affected her in various ways. And so I, I thought that that was very interesting that she doesn't keep that from the camera. And then it ends with her about to go into the Super Bowl, which was an awesome performance. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to kind of trace the entire plot of the documentary, but I will say... Um that there's it is interesting i learned things i didn't know about with her i don't follow her career closely so i didn't know that she was in physical pain and she has a, a an injury from a few years ago that gives her intense chronic pain i think she also suffers from fibromyalgia if i remember correctly from my research so that's interesting it's interesting given this insight into her but there are a couple things that I wish were different. One, I, I feel like the ending is anticlimactic a bit because it is. It acts like it's been leading up to this really great thing, and which is the Super Bowl halftime show. And it doesn't. It, it left me wanting more than anything else. Then the other thing is, she apparently was going through a separation and a divorce from her second husband, apparently at this time and that is extremely brushed aside and and given um, only brief lip service and i feel like that is kind of one missing piece of the entire picture uh, of this period of her life mm -hmm. in which she makes one reference oh ty and i are fighting and that's pretty much it right and well, then it's not really about him is it and but it's about her and she did release something when the time came for them to separate mm. she did release something that went viral and it was it was interesting 
I do so not. I feel like she got it out of the way in a different way. I do not recall that in the documentary, and it felt to me like there's a big piece that she's definitely being choosy about what is being shown. Um, so in a way, mm. you you feel like oh she's she's being really wrong, she's really being open, but really she's not. So there's a certain manufactured aspect to the documentary. That aside, it it definitely kind of endeared me to her. I like her as a professional. She works very hard. She knows her shit. And I, I was, I'm very impressed with Lady Gaga as a, uh, as a performer and as a singer. And well, we have different opinions on this film, don't we? We do, but it was also really cool to watch after watching A Star is Born. So yes. I really appreciated it. it. It's not as great as it could have been, but it's definitely worthwhile if you're curious about her at all. That's Lady Gaga, five foot two. We have a couple more for you. Going Our next in this film was Whitney. Yeah, going on this this uh, theme of musical documentaries, Whitney from this year, 2018, from the summer we also watched. This is the documentary about Whitney Houston and her life. Quite an eye-opening and revealing documentary, especially for someone like myself who grew up with Whitney Houston. She exploded during my grade school years with the, her, her first and second albums. Didn't We Almost Have It All, So Emotional, all of these songs. The Greatest Love of All, I remember actually hearing during PE in grade school. She was everywhere. She was all over pop, radio, and everything. So this is very interesting because it actually shows you behind-the-scenes footage shot by her family members with her family members as talking heads, as well as other people who were close to Whitney Houston over the years as talking heads. I found it to be very interesting because of how much it revealed of who Whitney Houston really was and how early the problems actually started in her career. I always assumed that the drugs really started after her marriage to Bobby Brown, who, as an outsider, always seemed like a bad influence. The guy always came across like a dick to me. In fact, the drugs actually started way before then and was introduced by her brothers. That's really interesting and kind of a shame to see how far back the cocaine use and other things escalated and because it's all about having fun as she says at one point but boy man you really see her uh, go downhill and it marks her progress of, of how things kind of escalate for her did you have any thoughts about Whitney yourself I didn't know much about Whitney mm-hmm. and watching this documentary made me incredibly sad afterwards but I'm glad I got to watch it. I compared Lady Gaga and Whitney, the two documentaries, and I thought it was interesting because although both have a lot of footage mm-hmm. of each person, I felt like the Lady Gaga one was more pleasing. Uh, we, we don't see her messing up. We kind of just see her suffering. In Whitney, it's a different kind of suffering, and it's she's messing up messing up all the time she's not you know acting like an adult she's not trying to make things work she's just spiraling down further and further all the time 
um, until she hits rock bottom. It also reminded me of the Amy Winehouse documentary. Yes, I, I was felt, going to get to that. I felt like the those two are very similar. Mm. That's why I think I like the Lady Gaga one more, is because it was like, well, she's creating this, and she's showing me what she wants us to see, and I'm okay with that. Mm. Whereas the Whitney one, she had no say in this, no. in this creation of this film, and mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that. I feel almost like... Because f- there's a lot of you, damage there. But you don't know? you feel like... I don't want to go too long, but don't you okay. feel like there's a little bit more freedom to actually depict who the person truly was and worse and all when you have a third-party person documenting after that, after the subject has passed away? As opposed to having to worry about the subject being alive, approving of the footage, whether or not they're going to file a lawsuit, whether or not they're going to demand that this is in it, that's not. I think there's plenty of time to do that when the artist is dead, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't mind what Lady Gaga did. I actually enjoyed it. I found it refreshing. Mm. There was such a horrible imbalance to Whitney's thing because... I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like only a quarter of it was good. Like, showing us, like, putting us in this viewer in awe kind of position. And then the other three quarters was how fucked up her life was. Well, I think it sets the stage of how immense the talent was. Yeah. And therefore, when, when what it does is it sets you up for this great, great height. So that way you can really understand how far, far, far mm. the fall was. And it documents that fall very well. It illustrates very well. Uh, the interesting thing is, you know, you, you uh, made the apt comparison of Amy, the documentary about Amy, and the documentary about Whitney. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing about them both is there was, like, talent there in their voice. With Whitney, I think... Well, I think with both of them, maybe, the focus was really more on their vocal prowess, you know, their ability to perform in their in their music, mm. as opposed to their contemporaries, to some extent. Some of their contemporaries were either trying to be edgier or, or do something, say something with their music. I'm thinking in particular of Janet Jackson and, and Madonna for mm-hmm. Whitney's contemporaries, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas with Whitney, it's all musically it's all pop and fluff right Mm -hmm. it's all superficial to an extent Mm -hmm. but that's because the focus was on her ability to sing how well she could sing how much of a talent she was as a singer you know i mean the the fact that she was able to do the national anthem which is a legendary performance in broadcast history and she did that in one take without any rehearsal is extraordinary you know and then you compare that with what her performances were way after like a decade of drugs and things going downhill for her Mm. you know that's just all gone i think it was just very difficult to get through because Mm. i think you have to be prepared one thing that it does do very well uh, whitney and amy winehouse's is it shows all these people that have power over these performers yeah like never have the that person's best interest at heart because it happened with both of these artists Amy Winehouse and Amy Winehouse and Whitney like they got sent to rehab and then they both phoned their fathers and their fathers said you can come out of rehab 
and it was like what the or fuck? don't go you know or, you know or don't go whatever like you, you don't have to yeah hopefully it serves as cautionary tales for future up-and-coming stars we have to move on mm-hmm. one last thing we saw monterey pop the legendary More um, music uh, pa da penna baker's film about the 1967 festival came out in 1968 this was the the june of 1967 this took place in it was the dawn of the summer of love legendary historic performances that uh, debuted the likes of Jimi hendrix janice joplin uh to the public it debuted the who to the american public that was debuted Otis Redding to mass, uh, main, not mainstream, but white audiences. What were your thoughts of Monterey Pop, the film, love? Well, it really, it really takes you there. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's good that this film exists because it's hard for me to wrap my head around that period of time. I don't listen to a lot of that music. I maybe listen to three or four of those people that we got to see. Uh, I think we got to see about eight. Or it was quite a, about eight, quite a few, yeah. Maybe ten. And what was interesting was the history behind it, that you were telling me that it was this festival that was created so that they could try and make rock be seen as a legitimate art form. And I'm always going to like support that because that's what photographers have to do mm. uh, towards the painters. You know, They have mm. to prove that they were a valid art form. And so I guess the premise of it is very interesting to me. I, th- I think that the... Who are the Brits? The Doors? The Who. I mean, The Who. Sorry, I always get The Who and The Doors mixed up. It's very Every odd. Every time. Very Every odd. Every time. So the, seeing The Who do their little destruction shindig, and then seeing yeah. Jimi Hendrix do his little shindig, I felt like I was horrified. <laughs> I think I was like, but what was interesting was the audience's reaction. Now to clarify, uh, give context here, Shannon's referring to The Who's uh, performance of My Generation, which closed their act, which ended with smoke bombs and Pete Townsend smashing his guitar. And then... And crew coming onto the stage, snatching the microphones yes. away from them. Yes. Because <laughs> they, they were afraid of expensive equipment getting damaged, right? Yeah. And then followed by, literally followed by Jimi Hendrix, who closed his act with a performance of Wild Thing, where he lights his guitar on fire. It's famous footage. You've probably seen that clip alone somewhere lights his guitar on fire, then smashes it seven times and tosses the pieces but out to the audience. he does it in a very sexual manner. He is. With lots of food and everything, and it's like, Right, and even shit. before, right? The entire performance of what he's doing mm-hmm. with his guitar, while he's making some extraordinary sounds coming from his guitar, the, the manner in which he's doing it, he's, he's, it's like he's making love to his guitar. You're absolutely right about that. Very um, interesting. Not my, my, not my thing, but very interesting to oh. see... Totally um, my thing. Okay, cool. That's great. Yeah. But it blew people's minds. <laughs> it so. was very interesting to see that. And I like they had in-between footage showing kind of this capsule of what what people were like, mm-hmm. what people were wearing, what people were, how they were presenting themselves. And mm-hmm. you could tell it was a total rejection of the 50s. Right. You look at the 50s. That whole generation. Yeah. You look at the 50s and you're like, everybody looks like they're in uniform, especially the woman. 
the men too, I'm sure, but my thing's the woman. And it's just so restrictive and, and so... Well, it was a conservative time. Oh, so suffocating. And then you see all these women wearing these very bellowy, like, sort of dresses that are very, very free-flowing, very free fabric, highly patterned, bright colors, just totally different. Yeah. That's Monterey Pop, which has a Criterion edition. Uh, we recommend checking that out. We are way behind, so we got to get going to our main review of Damien Chazelle's First Man. Are you sure? Yeah. Be an adventure. First man to walk on the moon. That'd be something. We've chosen a job so difficult, requiring so many technological developments. We're gonna have to start from scratch. Only after we master these tasks do we consider trying to land on the moon. Neil, if this flight is successful, you'll go down in history. What kind of thoughts do you have about that? We're planning on the flight being successful. Damn, that is a big mother. It'll go up like a half kiloton A-bomb if it blows. The vehicle's not safe. We need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. This isn't just another trip, Neil. You're not just going to work. Do you think you're coming back? There are risks, but we have every intention of coming back. Somebody got a Swiss Army knife. Swiss Army knife. You kidding me? Here we go. Six, five, four, three, two. Do you question whether the program's worth the cost in money and in life? We have serious problems. Got this under control. You're a bunch of boys. You don't have anything under control. That was from the trailer to Damien Chazelle's First Man, starring Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy. First Man is about Neil Armstrong's mission to landing on the moon in Apollo 11. So when we review a film, we like to first focus on the good, what we liked about a film, before moving on to the bad, what we didn't like or what didn't work about a film, and then spoilers and final thoughts. Shanna, you're familiar with Damien Chazelle's previous work, Whiplash and La La Land. What were your thoughts about his work in general, were you a fan of uh, what you'd seen before? And are you a fan of First Man? What did you like about it? I'm a huge fan of Whiplash because I just feel like it's just so intense. And you can tell that the director is coming through there because he's like getting these really extreme performances from his actors. La La Land, I'm okay with. It, it's not spectacular to me. It's really? very pretty. But I'm more of a singing in the rain girl. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because La La Land is 
not unlike seen in the rain in style yes. and dance and color. There's some very obvious influences there. Yes. <laughs> yes. So first man for me, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I go to the Museum of Flat very often and they have a very lovely space exhibit. They're very proud of their space exhibit. And so you actually get to see the controls. You get to see the cassette tape that, you know, uh, Neil Armstrong would listen to. You get to see the suits. You get to see the flimsy, the one flimsy helmet, like one of the first that they made. Mm. I mean, I look at this stuff and then I look at Star Trek and I look at Star Wars and I'm like, how do movies get from here to there <laughs> with the mm -hmm. technology they depict? So it was very refreshing to see something that wasn't very slick, shiny, and perfect. Because obviously there's a lot of jarring movements happening in this film. You know, you're trying to get pulled out of the atmosphere. Never mind, go to the edge of the atmosphere of the Earth. You're trying to pull away from gravity. You know, it's a very interesting concept when you think about how no one had done it you know like this wasn't something that was known this was the first generation americans weren't the first ones to do space exploration but i mean they didn't know what the hell they were doing really they just had theories they just had math mm -hmm. and that was it so that was very interesting to see it in this very unperfect way mm. to see space travel like that um and how horrifying it can be and mm -hmm. like what are these guys doing? This is their job? God, I hope they were getting paid a lot of money, which I don't think they were. Um, it was also interesting how they tied in what else was happening in the country at that time and making it clear that there was a huge part of the population that did not support the space program. Was uh, it that funds. huge? Do we know it was that huge? I think a lot of people were very, very upset about it. Mm. There were other things happening in the country that were mm -hmm. not getting attention. And this was mm. so it was very interesting to see that what made the film great I feel is that they made it about family these astronauts had a family these astronauts had wives who had to keep it together they were probably absolutely fucking terrified um, as far as Neil Armstrong's family unit went I loved Claire Foy I thought that she was a very powerful woman and in the trailer you hear that line of you're a bunch of boys you don't know you don't have anything in under control mm. and i thought that that was it's like she's kind of right guys <laughs> it's like mm. they don't know what they're doing i thought her performance was amazing but i also liked her friend's performance and then just finishing up with what i thought about the family life there were these beautiful little detail shots that would happen with neil armstrong's daughter and it was just intimate and it was pretty and it was like nothing else mattered except for these little moments. I really enjoyed the film. Hmm. Well, I really love Chazelle's work so far. I think he's definitely on fire. I, um, Whiplash, La La Land, First Man. I don't know that First Man's my favorite of his. I think mm -hmm. La La Land may be my favorite of his. Mm -hmm. But... What's interesting about this film is, first and foremost, it really puts you in the experience mm -hmm. and makes makes everything about what they're in feel real. It doesn't glorify the, the situations. It's not about uh, lionizing these people and, and their missions. 
It's about actually bringing it down to earth, so to speak. Uh, and what what exactly did it feel like when you're walking across the the bridge to the ship? When you're getting in the ship and getting locked in? When it's starting up and everything's rattling? The the tangible experience that these men went through is very well recreated it, it seems to me by this film that's one of its biggest achievements the score also by justin Hurwitz, i thought was one of the best scores i have i have heard this year in particular what stands out to me is uh, the sequence when the mission spoiler alert goes to the moon is it's really gripping stuff. Uh, Justin Hurwitz, by the way, he's actually scored Damien Chazelle's other films, La La Land and Whiplash, and uh, also Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, which apparently is Damien Chazelle's original film, which I know nothing about. But I, I, shout out to, to Justin Hurwitz for that. Also, what's interesting is a couple other things. This film follows a through line with Chazelle's other works, which is that people, people with a passion, people with a drive towards something, that, that passion and that drive is so strong, but at what cost is it to everybody else in their life? With Whiplash, the drummer, it's at the cost of his relationship. With La La Land, you had two people with career passions and the question was, could they actually have a healthy relationship while pursuing their separate passions? Now with First Man, you have a man who's not necessarily passionate, but he is very driven and, and determined with uh, getting the job done, right? And the entire space program is determined to get the job done and one-up the Russians. But at what cost, you know, we witness that people are dying and that's probably one of the biggest things that a portion of the american public which by the way we never see depicted in any other film and so i really appreciate it but a portion of the american public had took issue with these missions which was oh well now people are dying so what the hell are we doing and also at what cost to personal relationships there's definitely some paternal issues that occur in this film because of the the work and because of we learn certain elements of the personality of that generation as well at least in Lan not lance armstrong neil armstrong's case he's not a he's not a heart on his sleeve kind of guy right he keeps his feelings closed in you know and just until he has an explosion so i think that is a really interesting theme that not only runs through Chazelle's work as a whole, but also is very interestingly explored in uh, this film. I don't think the film is necessarily trying to damn NASA's Gemini and Apollo programs. By you know, I don't think it's asking the question in that sense, but I think it's kind of asking a more universal question right at what cost do we do we pursue our passions or careers you know and or try or whatever goals national or otherwise that we have
So I think that's a very fascinating aspect of the film, for sure. Shannon, was there anything that you didn't like? I cannot recall. Why don't you start it out, and I'll let you know if something comes to mind. Well, my only thing is... It's a weird thing, because it comes late in the film, but it's like spoilers for history. So we're not doing a spoiler section? So it's a weird thing. Like there's, there's definitely. If you want to get into the personal stuff, spoiler stuff, then we can have a spoiler section about okay, that. Cool. This particular thing isn't personal. It's really more like stuff that you know most about mm-hmm. historically. Should I get into that now or wait till spoiler? We could wait till spoiler because honestly, okay. I listened to a Fresh Air episode uh-huh. about the making of this film with Damien Chazelle being interviewed and I, I didn't know certain things. It's on my playlist to do's. So do you have any general thoughts or ideas that you took away from this film that you like to share before we get into spoilers? Guys, I didn't cry. It was so exciting. After like the last two films that we've reviewed where <laughs> I cried like five to 15 times, it was so refreshing not to cry. And that was because something got spoiled for me. So oh, really? It like set up like a protective layer of oh. like... Okay. You think you otherwise would have been emotional? Otherwise I probably would have been emotional. See, that's interesting because I thought you were going to speak to something that I, I think was my experience, which was I don't know how emotional this movie really is. I don't know if it's meant to be. Right. Exactly. Which, you know, is that a bad thing? Um, is it a, a knock against the movie? Should it have been more emotionally yeah. engaging? No. I'm not sure. I think it's engaging in other ways, though. If, um, if you think about what you just said about the time it happened in and what the expectations were yeah. on people in, within the society on how to behave, yeah, it's probably a good film decision then mm. that it isn't. Yeah. And besides, oh. we have other shit to cry about that came out this year. Really briefly, do you want to speak to any of the performances? Oh, I thought everybody did great. I, I really, really liked Claire Foy and her friend. Okay. Her friend, quote unquote, who really probably had maybe 10 minutes of screen time that you're shouting out to. Her name is, I believe it's Olivia Hamilton, who plays Pat White. Her ability to keep everything in, but still give a good performance where you can kind of tell as a viewer what that woman is going through. Mm. I thought that must be something incredibly difficult to do i could be talking shit but (laughs) from what i understand about acting Mm. i feel like there would be a lot of okay that's too much take it back a notch okay this is too little bring it up a bit you know i feel like she's walking a very fine line well she's not overly dramatic that's that's for sure uh what i'm saying is i think it's a difficult in between Mm. and i thought she did it very well this is probably her most prominent role. It looks like she did a, a couple bit parts and some sh- uh, roles in shorts and an episode here or there of TV. So I'm not very familiar with her. Um, but shout out to Olivia Hamilton. For me, Ryan Gosling is a runaway train with his performances. I, mean, I, I really haven't seen him lately in anything that I think A was terrible or he was terrible in majority of this decade and he's making good decisions 
Yeah, yeah, and he's he's doing great work in each of those decisions. So shout out to Kyle Chandler, who plays Deke Slayton. If I'm not mistaken, that's Ed Harris's character in Apollo 13. Patrick Fugit, uh, love him. Anytime I see him, Jason Clark, who's also had a pretty good career this uh, this decade as Ed White, uh, one of the friends. It's a pretty pretty strong cast. You have a lot of people just kind of making you know they're not contributing a whole lot they're just kind of part of the scenery as part of the the crew and stuff you know you got ethan Embry, lucas hawes quite a few names uh that's in the sierra and hines a lot of a lot of people uh let's move into spoilers uh really briefly for first man starting now so if you haven't seen first man skip ahead to film phase because here we go Shanna, do you have anything to say? I mean, it's not that much of a spoiler. If you're still here and you're an emotional wreck like me, you could probably just stay and get protection from <laughs> feeling anything uh-huh. in the film. Yeah, so where do we start? Why don't you talk about the thing that you didn't like that you didn't want to get into? So this is a minor thing. Yeah. But it's a major thing at the same time. Neil Armstrong's line... One small step for man, one great leap for one giant, one giant leap for um, mankind. I think it was a step. So here's the thing: there is nothing prior to that that like addresses the build up to that line, you know. Mm. And and that kind of bugs me a little bit. Like I've mm. even I think I've even heard Buzz Aldrin in an interview say like how they discussed like, well, what are you gonna say when you get out there? You gotta say something you're gonna be on tv and all that sort of stuff like you know you're not gonna be like oh wow it's kind of chalky out here or anything like that right <laughs> you know that would be really funny right and so <laughs> but there's nothing about the the neil armstrong that is presented to, to us as someone who's verbose or someone who's an or great orator you know like he's in press conferences and he's speaking practically right when he's asked questions you know what would you bring more fuel if i could you know like this is the guy that we're presented. And then all of a sudden, he gets out on the moon and he's saying, this is one small step for man, this is one giant leap for humankind, mankind, whatever. It's like, how did that, it just, it oh, just I guess didn't, it doesn't feel like him. It didn't feel natural, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, it was a weird thing for him to say, given everything else. And so I wish they'd actually explored the historical fact of how did that famous line come about and it doesn't do that and that was a mild disappointment uh for me and was otherwise an extraordinary sequence where i felt like i was as close to being on the moon as i ever will be i think you have a point (laughs) and i can understand you being upset yeah you're right it's not like we saw him we didn't get a hint of anything that would explain how he came up with that line I guess we'll have to do some research into how that line came about. Yeah. It's got to have come from somewhere. I guess, yeah. I just wish um, I wish we didn't have to, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily upset. It's just one of the things that really kind of stood out to me. It's like, really? You know, What's the real story there? Yeah. yeah. You know, you do so much in this film of, giving, of putting us in the situation and giving us, like, what the reality of the situation is. And then... Did we miss something, maybe? Did we miss him... I didn't go pee, so I don't know. <laughs> you know. What I'm trying to say is, did we miss any visual clues? Did we miss any subtle clues that would have 
led to this, you know? Well, I, I guess our listeners can email us if we did, but I don't I don't think I did. But at any rate, was mm. there anything that kind of stuck out to you? Any flaws, issues that you had with the film whatsoever? Even thinking about it after the fact? There's nothing I can recall. So this is I a perfect really... film for you? No. Okay. No, it's not a perfect film to me. I feel like there were certain elements lacking, and unfortunately I cannot verbalize them. Mm. I would have to see this film again to be able to... Because I wanted to be in it. Mm. I didn't want to critique it to pieces. Mm. I, I wanted to really experience it. Okay. So I can't think of anything that I disliked. Okay. There were certain things that creeped me out personally, but that's not the film's fault. It's actually an important part of the film. Like I was saying earlier, during this time, women all looked the same because they were expected to look very uniform. It's very creepy for me. Uh. Anyway, I would have liked to have seen female calculators. Um, I think female that, calculators? Yeah, so the woman from Hidden Figures, they oh. were calculators or gotcha. computers. Oh, sorry. They're called computers. Oh, okay. Um, I, <laughs> I do apologize. It's okay. My calculator is not working. So I, I would have liked to have seen a hint of that, but at the same time, I know it's, it's Neil's story, and it's very obvious in the setup that they show you with his daughter, it's going to be about him and, and sort of his journey. Yeah, and it is very myopic in that sense. Which is fine. It's not not a criticism of the film in any way. As a matter of fact, there was one thing I think I acknowledge. Many of us are very familiar with Apollo 13, thanks to the 1995 film by Ron Howard, Apollo 13. Very different film in some ways, you know, even aside from the fact that one's about a successful mission, one's about a failed mission. But very different in in its style, how, how well you understand what's going on, in in each um, moment to moment versus the other but also there's it's it's very interesting because one of the aspects of first man is the training and the training is so so life or death a lot of the times you know whereas in apollo 13 in a time like what what this follows like a year or two after the the neil armstrong apollo 11 like they actually see in apollo 13 the film you actually see them watch neil armstrong land on the moon on tv right Mm -hmm. and they've been going through training themselves through simulators right so um it's really odd and interesting how like there's an overlap here but you don't see that in first man in any way you know instead he's having to go on these like crazy ass trainings where he's risking his fucking life and his his justification is we need to fail down here so we don't fail up there you know well and i think it's a sound argument yeah but that's it's just it's just odd to me how like well how come they're not using simulators for apollo 11's prep and they were for apollo 13's prep like according to the movies well, according to their research, you know, in creating the scripts and everything, which I feel is pretty sound, you know, um, it's, it's, it, anyway, it's a curiosity to me, but it's not a movie, it's not a thing that hurts the film. Shall we wrap up? Well, I was just going to say that I, I did like the ending. I did like that mm. he, there's this kind of symbolism of him letting go of his daughter's death. Yeah, hopefully that's what that actually translated to in reality. And uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if he actually did 
uh, drop her bracelet on the moon. I hope so because that's a very beautiful gesture that that it, that was made there. I guess we won't ever actually know unless he wrote a biography and actually detailed that in his biography. I think he did write a biography. Oh, I haven't read it. I don't know. Well, I could be completely wrong, guys. All well, right. so in your mind, the good outweighs the bad yep. in this film. I think that everybody should watch it, especially if you have an appreciation for things like Star Wars and Star Trek, because it's like you're seeing this is point A, and Star Wars and Star Trek are like point, I don't know, three times around the alphabet Z. Well, if you're going that route, particularly Star Trek, which is actually supposed to be our progress. <laughs> In space travel. Anyway. Okay. Is it but, funny that I thought about the one Star Trek film? It's it's the one with Patrick Stewart. Which one? Uh, Those four. And they, they go back in time. Oh, yeah. First I, Contact. And I just kept thinking of that when Neil Armstrong was out there uh, near the atmosphere. <laughs> gotcha. It's like, when is Star Trek coming? Well, do you feel like First Man is one of the best films of the year? Is it up there with Sorry to Bother You and Quiet Place and all those films? I don't think so. Okay. I think it's it's a great piece of history being depicted. Okay. I think it's done very well. Uh-huh. I, I don't think it's the best film ever. Well, I'm talking about of this film year. in the year. Okay. I, I don't think so. Maybe it's a top ten, but I, it's definitely not the top five. Okay. All right, fair enough. I asked because I'm kind of wrestling with that question myself. Uh, Where is it on your thing? Not really sure, to be honest. But it's one of those worth worth seeing, for sure. I'd probably give it like a, an 8 out of 10, but I'm not sure that I settled on it being one of the best of the movies of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, talk that you'll probably hear soon as we get into um, festival season. At any rate, that is First Man. Email us what are your thoughts of the film. The Gibson Review at gmail.com is a great place to send those thoughts to. Uh, do you think it's one of the best films of the year? Let us know why. What did we miss? Let's move on to Film Faves 1991. Film Faves, for those who aren't familiar, is a feature that originated in the Gibson Review blog where I counted down 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, specifically marching back through time, year by year. Shannon and I have been doing that since the beginning of this podcast ourselves, Uh, occasionally taking a break to focus on a particular theme like last episode's remakes. The whole idea is twofold. One, to show you a little bit about our taste in film, but also hopefully to expose you to things you're not familiar with or have yet to see. And to that end, we try to point you in regards to where you can find these movies to stream, particularly to Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and HBO Now when available. Unfortunately, most of the time, most films are not available on those platforms, but we do point it out when that is the case. Uh, this episode is about 1991. Shannon, why don't you start us off with your 12th favorite film of 1991. So before I get to my number 12, I will note that there's about five or six films in here that have really fantastic female roles. And we'll get to that. I'll point them out when we get to each film. Very cool. But I thought cool. that that was pretty cool. It was like a year of the girl. A nice. year of the woman. That's awesome. It so, just took us another 27 years yeah. to do it again. <laughs> My 
My number 12 does not follow that. Father of the Bride. Oh, really? Yes. With his oldest daughter's wedding approaching, her father finds himself having a hard time letting go. I'm just a fan of Steve Martin, so it's nice to see Steve Martin. But if I had to compare this one and the original Father of the Bride... From 1950? Yeah, that one is going to be my favorite. With Spencer Tracy and Audrey Hepburn. Yes. Or, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, sorry. Yes, but um, I, I would not want to even venture looking at that film if I had not been exposed to the 1991 oh, version. So... What is your number 12? Well, my number 12 is a film that you can find right now on HBO Now. It is Doc Hollywood starring Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox plays this hotshot plastic surgeon-to-be who's on his way, I believe, to, to Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. From Chicago, I believe. He takes a, a road trip drive. He's going to do a job interview for this. Uh, it's actually kind of crazy that he's picking up and moving and he hasn't even like had the job interview. But anyway, he has this job interview he's for confident. this very high-profile plastic surgery clinic, practice. I guess. Yeah, practice. It's as if you're watching Pixar's Cars and he is Lightning McQueen. That's an interesting comparison. He does get completely <laughs> sidetracked. That's what I'm looking mm-hmm. for. Sidetracked. And he gets McQueen. He, he he ends up in a small <laughs> podunk town and he gets stuck there because his car's busted, it needs to be repaired, and everybody's glad to have him because he's a doctor. And they have well, an he has to doctor. provide community service. He ends up having to provide community mm-hmm. service to pay for this, or in return for damaging a fence. He damaged the judge's fence on accident. And was a bit of a dick about it. At any rate. Way to go, dude. <laughs> this is a very sweet, cute, and fun comedy about um, you know big city boy and small town America. It stars Woody Harrelson and Bridget Fonda and Julie Warner. Those are three of the standout performances, I think, in this film it's not that it just helps it carry carry you through it for sure it's fun seeing woody harrelson i think he might have just finished or been coming to the end of his career at cheers and so that's fun as one of bridget fonda's best roles she's this girl who's looking for a way someone who can take her out of the town you know get get out of there she wants a, a, a busier more metropolitan life you know and then julie warner who had um a moment in the early 90s with this and indian summer and a few others uh she's a delight and i kind of miss seeing her on screen i wish she had a more steady career at least one that that's noteworthy you definitely she does have credits but anyway this is doc hollywood fun film michael j fox is a delight in it that is available on hbo now my number 11 is available on Netflix. Woohoo! It is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And this stars Kevin Costner. It also has Morgan Freeman and a couple of other fun faces like. Uh, Christian Slater. Sure, Christian Slater, my love. And Snape. Snape is in it. Well, Alan Rickman. Didn't you yes, just mention Alan Rickman? I did not say Alan Rickman. Oh. So there we go. We got Snape in there. And. <laughs> He's really weird, guys. It's really funny and awkward and just so bizarre. This is my favorite Robin Hood film. Uh, it's even more of a favorite than the Robin Hood Disney 
animation version. Which you're a fan of. Yeah, I am a fan of it. That song will be stuck in my head now for the rest of the night. Robin Hood and Little John <laughs> right in the forest. Oodle lolly, oodle lolly. So this film is a favorite of mine because there's just so much action in it. There's this... It's happening in a very interesting setting. It's There's drama. There's I must protect my family's honor, my name. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of fun. Very cool. And put the Sheriff of Nottingham in his place. Of course. As you do. My next film is The Addams Family. Oh, I love The Addams Family. Raul Julia, Christopher Lloyd, Angelica Houston, Christina Ritchie, God, and him. many more. I remember just really this being a family favorite growing up, kind of loving it. The Adams Family in general, the TV series, was a family favorite. So I thought that this was a very fun adaptation. Very arguably one of the best adaptations of a TV show made into a movie. I have mixed feelings about the sequel, Adams Family Values. But this film's a lot of fun. The Mamushka sequence, the dance sequence... Is a, is a delight. Let's watch that film now. Christopher Lloyd. This is the season. Is uh, basically a guy who is pretending to be part of the Adams family to try to get at their fortune, but it turns out he might actually be part of the family after all. Uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. I was curious who directed this. Barry Sonnenfeld would go on and do Men in Black. He he definitely has a style. That's not too far removed from Tim Burton, just not as quite as gothic in his uh, style. Definitely that kind of quirky, dark fun, and uh, is a good fit for the Adams family. And it's kind of hard to top. Now I'll be curious to see how the animated film in in a year adapts the comic strip. But uh, yeah. Oh, and Dan Hedaya, who went on to play. Alicia Silverstone's father in Clueless in 1995. He's a delight here as well. So that's The Addams Family. My number 10 is Hook. Hook, oh. Hook. Give us the hook. Uh, this stars Robin Williams as Peter Pan, Dustin Hoffman as Captain Hook, Tinkerbell is Julia Roberts, and Bob Hoskins is Smee. And of course, we're not going to forget, Maggie Smith is Granny Wendy. Oh, yeah. And this is basically about Captain Hook kidnapping... Peter Pan's children, a most devious plan. And <laughs> with Peter Pan, Peter Banning, you know, following over to Netherland, and he is supposed to stop being an adult, find his childlike wonder again, his spirit, and defeat Captain Hook to save his children. And it's a lovely bonding film with the children. He doesn't have a very good relationship with them. Because of all the work he does, and he's grown up. Yeah, he's he's grown up. He's become harsh. He's adapted to the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Damn mm-hmm. this world! And now he has to reconnect. And in order to reconnect with his children, he has to reconnect with himself. Very deep. There may be more about Hook in a little bit. My next film, though, my tenth favorite film from 1991, is Necessary Roughness, a football comedy. That stars Scott Bakula, Hector Elizondo, Robert Loggia, Larry Miller, is very annoying Larry Miller, Sinbad, Fred Dalton Thompson, who we saw in another movie last night, Rob Schneider, Jason Bateman, 
The list goes on. Kathy Ireland, hello. So basically, this movie is about a 40-year-old who is asked to lead a Texas University football team. And basically, they're trying to get you know the, the football program to um, stay active. It's being threatened, basically, by Larry Miller's character. It's a bit of fun, light entertainment. Sure, there's at least one play where flags definitely should have been thrown. But the practice with the state penitentiary is absurd, if you think about it. And the formation of the team is questionable. However, the cast, which I named, definitely makes it worthwhile is it's just a lot of fun it's very enjoyable it's a silly film and i've always enjoyed it a little known uh football comedy called necessary roughness it is actually available right now on amazon prime shanna what's your ninth favorite film from 1991 my number nine is jfk this is by oliver stone and stars kevin costner gary oldman and jack lemon just to name a few Mm-hmm. The New Orleans District Attorney, Jim Garrison, discovers there's more to the Kennedy assassination than the official story. Now, here's the thing. I always find anything that plays with this incident very interesting mm-hmm. because I believe it was so poorly handled that it is up for interpretation and is up for very harsh criticism, mm. which means theories can fly around. Okay. So, I, it's something like this will never happen again mm. in the manner in which it happened. Because, I don't know, it's just, it was really messy. If you've ever seen a documentary on the JFK assassination, mm-hmm. you will know what I'm talking about. And as an outsider to America, it's very interesting for me to see too. Different takes, different interpretations. I mean, everybody's had a chance to interpret this, even the Bones television show had a chance to reenact the shooting to figure out via Bone investigation how it went down and how it didn't go down. I like this movie. I like this film's setup and how they interpreted Jim Garrison's Mm. opinions Mm. about the assassination. It's very cool, especially uh, when I see a, a film that I showed you end up on your list. It is uh, a very long film. It is three hours. So yes. Just so that you know. Yeah, that's not a light night at the movies. My next film is My Girl. Oh, that's my next one, too. Oh, no kidding, okay, really. Okay, you go first. I think I will. So of this course. stars Anna Klumsky, Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, and, of course, Macaulay Culkin. Uh, post or pre post pre yeah it was post home alone so everybody was very interested in him doing a different role and um, basically the premise of the movie really is about a like 10 12 year old girl um, having her adolescence in this time it's in the 60s and kind of coming of age during this period right she has a fear of death even though her dad is a a funeral home uh, director yeah i don't know what is he a mortician yeah mortician thank you that's a a better word and jamie lee curtis gets hired to do the the preparing of the bodies for presentations during funerals and such 
this is the first movie to make me cry. Uh, for those, you know, it's been long enough that there actually might be a big audience that may not actually know what the hook of this movie is. And, and, and so I won't spoil it because it's definitely like a, a three quarters of the way kind of hook in the film to which the rest of the, the film follows and, and reacts to. But this is the first film I remember actively making me cry when I was 12 when I saw it. Mm. Anna Klumski does a fantastic job. I'm really glad she's back to working as an actress, as an adult. It's fun seeing her in these political comedies like Veep and the, the movie that was based on the thick of it. Uh, yeah, oh gosh, I always in forget. In the Loop. In the Loop, yes. It's fun seeing her in those movies, but this is... This is her iconic role. This is the one that she'll always be remembered for. Jamie Lee Curtis is a delight doing something very different. You know, this is a couple years away from True Lies. This is several years away from Prom Night and Halloween and all those Scream Queen films she did. You've also got Dan Aykroyd, and this is from the director that did Parent... I mean, producer that did Parenthood. Ah, very cool. Who directed the film? What did he do? Director is Howard Zeef. I'm not familiar with him, but I know James Newton Howard did the score. I love the score. I love the soundtrack. It's a great 60s soundtrack as well. I played the tape ad nauseum uh, when I was growing up. Apparently the director of Private Ven Benjamin, there's a film that you should see, My Girl 2 and Dream Team. He apparently stopped directing after My Girl 2. Ooh, ouch. Most of those movies are not great. My Girl does get a little saccharine toward the end, but so are the emotions of a 12-year-old girl. So, um, I think it, it fits. What do you have to say about My Girl? I, I think it's a lovely film about friendship. Mm -hmm. and, and it shows you everything you'll experience in friendship just with this little girl's life. Yeah. And little, she's what, 12? I think so. It's a little life, you know? Yeah. She's just starting out making friends and she's just started her life. So I, I feel like it's an important film to watch. So that's My Girl. And so, Shanna, my next film is Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme, the Best Picture winner of the year, and, interestingly enough, one of the highest grossing movies of the year. Can you guess how much uh, Silence of the Lambs did that year? Mm -mm -mm -mm. It was the fifth highest grossing film of the year. This is a rated R kind of horror th uh, crime film. It made $272.7 million that year. So one of the things that I think is worth noting about this film is Jodie Foster and how she, God, her, her so character much. is in relation to other men in the film. Mm. Very often, the way things are framed, she's smaller than the men around her, and she's always having to kind of prove herself in some way in her career she uh, on this case right cramped spaces too right and also even in the end which i won't get into details of you know her body language and and the fact that she's a, um, alone in a space with a, a dangerous man you know it, it's very interesting her performance her 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 character clarice starling is a great character and how she has to um basically prove herself so to speak in this man's world right mm -hmm. um scott glenn is also in this film as her boss he's great and of course anthony hopkins who overshadows everything with this film understandably as hannibal lecter gives a wonderful 
and iconic performance as one of the great uh, characters in horror. Um, Shannon, what's your next favorite film? My number seven is Defending Your Life. Oh, wonderful. Which was such a delight for me to watch. It was so delightful. It was so fun for me. So for people who don't know, what yes. is Defending Your Life and who's so, the star? Okay, well, let's talk about what it is first. So Defending Your Life is, during this film, you are going to the afterlife. It's kind of the waiting room for the afterlife because in front of a sort of court-like system, they're going to determine whether you need to be, you're, you're essentially your soul form there and you're, they're going to determine if you need to go and live life again because you cannot pass through the gates mm-hmm. um, and pick what's on the other side based on whatever religion you are. Or belief system you have you cannot pass through those gates unless you have lived life fully and let go of fear specifically yes. yes they want you to let go of fear because if you let go of fear then you can have a full life can't you so they're like replaying certain elements like a movie of each person's life and they go through a pretty but it's rigorous like trial history. evidence basically yeah you know it's really funny <laughs> And so I had no idea what this film was about, Mm -hmm. and I only knew what you told me, that it had Albert Brooks, and it had Meryl Streep. So I was Mm -hmm. like, well, why wouldn't I want to watch something with Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep? Well, and how often do you get to see Meryl Streep in a comedy? Let alone a romantic comedy of sorts. Well, I'm having a hard time thinking about it, aren't I? That's the point, right? (laughs) So I found this film really entertaining, especially when I figured out what was going on. It was nice to go in not knowing what it was about, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, even if you don't, if you find this particular interpretation, uh, this kind of genre interesting, you should totally check it out because there is some sort of bias that happens. People get sorted into different hotels and have different services available to them based on how they live their life. There is a lot of creativity in how they conceive of this sort of afterlife. And of course, Albert Brooks is a very witty man who's not in vogue right now, but he's a delight to go back and watch. It's interesting because there's a sort of Buddhist quality to what's what they're up against, isn't there? You have to, you may have to go back and try again. Yeah, you know? it's like, well, if you didn't contribute something of substance either, mm-hmm. yeah. then you have to go back right, right. as a human. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is like, if you really think about it, like you've just just lived through puberty alone and you have to go back and go through it again i always tell like the kids that i know that are going through puberty i'm like yeah you can keep it i don't want to go through that again so my next film is uh, one you mentioned before it is hook directed by steven spielberg it's worth noting you went through most of the the cast i will say the production design may be the weakest thing about this film as it has a claustrophobic studio feel to it. But that is the only concession I'll make against this film, uh, which I think gets unfairly raked through the coals. Mm-hmm. It has a great score by John Williams. Oh, so beautiful. It is great fun. It has a very creative concept of Peter Pan growing up and and finding himself first of all i don't know how he does this but he completely forgot about neverland and he finds himself having to go to neverland to save his children uh charlie 
Cosmo is his uh, son, who Charlie Cosmo was having a heck of a, uh, a time because he was in Dick Tracy in 1990. He was in another film. Was it Hunt for what October? About what about Bob? He's in What About Bob in 1991 and and Hook as well. And then a few years later, he was in Can't Hardly Wait, and people were like, "It's the kid from Hook." But anyway, I digress. You have Dustin Hoffman doing just mustache twirling fun as Captain Hook. There's face attacks. There's so much that's <laughs> delightful and enjoyable about this movie. You know, Rufio. You know, uh, which had probably one of the most heart-stopping moments of my childhood, oh by my the God. way, in the yeah. climax of this film. Yeah. I, not to spoil it, but I, I really do love this film. I, I understand it has its production design issue, but aside from that, you know, the food fight, there's just so many oh, memorable... when he gets his imagination back. That yeah. is so awesome. Yeah, there's so many memorable Those and lovely scenes. Those colors are so unreal. Absolutely. So I love the film. Hook, it, it, it hangs in there at number seven for me. Shanna, what's next for you? Well, I forgot to mention that number eight is one of the, with my girl, is one of the first very strong female character roles. Um, oh. She was fantastic in that. Well, number six is like the height of kick-ass woman in film, and that's Thelma and Louise. Okay. <laughs> so that is directed by Ridley Scott. It's written by Callie Curry. And it's starring Susan Sarandon and Sheena Davis. Most iconic roles of both those actresses, They're I would say. so fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, if anyone doesn't know what this is about, it's two best friends, and they decide, fuck life, we're going to go on an adventure, we're going to go have like a vacation, yeah. road trip, uh, it's going to be really awesome, but something happens on the way, mm-hmm. and now they're running away from that problem. Right. And They're not going home. I think we've spoken about this film before, and I spoke Mm. very well about it back then, but know that this is a very important film about what's expected of women in our society and how they were pushing against that, and Mm. it led to them never going home. So, And also, would you say this is a pretty good film about female friendships? I think so, because when you have a really good female friend or friends mm-hmm. you're, you're with them for the long haul mm. you you don't give up on them you don't back out you are freaking there for them no matter what it takes mm-hmm. uh, which can be terrifying but it's also that's how strong the bond can be mm. very very cool pick I'm glad that you enjoyed that film another one I, I showed you and, and also going back to your point Meryl Streep's actually a really great character in defending your life as we we see illustrated in her trial yes, scenes. This is true. Right? Um, but uh, my next film, my, we're at the halfway mark now. Beauty and the Beast. Oh, that's my next one too. Is by Disney. It's my number six film of 1991. Of course, everybody knows this iconic Golden Age Disney film. This is after they had done Little Mermaid and Rescuers Down Under. This really solidified this this new like great period of Disney animated films. Beautiful story. For me, I love the song Something There. That's one of the height of the this film's um, emotional notes. For me, I always touched me uh, more than Beauty and the Beast, the actual song. Though that has its its uh, tenderness as well, 
I mean, this film's a classic. I don't really know what more I can say about it. It was remade last year, the year before. Into live action. Into live action. Wonderfully cast with Emma Watson. Yes. Love her perfect as Belle. That's the best thing I'll say about the movie. Um, but what do you have to say about this um, this animated film? I absolutely love this animated film. Again, speaking about strong, knows what she wants, female characters in film, mm-hmm. there's Belle. I think that yep. Belle, uh, Belle is probably one of the first ones. You have Ariel, but I feel like Belle is, a, is like the first book smart character that we get in the Disney princess And she's not culture. interested in men. No, she's yeah. really not. I love, I love Belle, too. She's one of my yeah. favorite Disney characters. You know, falling in love just kind of happens, you know, so... It's a very, right. very cool film. And I will say, Angela Lansbury. Yeah. That is all. <laughs> Jerry Orbach. Angela also Lansbury. Jerry. Also, <laughs> this film gets better and better as you get older and mm. the more life experience you gain. I remember my first year of art. It was a very, very intense art history program that we had to go through and we learned about all the different movements like from the beginning of time mm-hmm. to current and one of the things that were very interesting was Baroque, the Baroque uh-huh. movement. Yeah. And Cogsworth is showing Belle through the palace. Oh, and he yes. says, ah, oh, the Baroque period. And you know what they say, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. Right. <laughs> it was just really great. Yeah. So it, it really it gets better and better as you get older. Shanna. I think you have to tell us about your number five. Yes, and I will. It is... <laughs> Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Forget that this is one of the best Star Trek films with the original cast. Forget that it's even a Star Trek film. The Undiscovered Country is a very good mystery. A peace between two races has been threatened by the murder of a chancellor, and the evidence seems to suggest James T. Kirk, who harbors his own prejudices, is responsible. A final proper entry for the original cast is one of the most interesting and exciting of the entire series with a colorful menagerie of supporting characters. I love Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. It may be in my top five Star Trek films overall. And it's a shame you haven't caught up with it yet. You, you, you may... <laughs> totally shaking your finger at me. No, no, no. I'm not shaking my <laughs> finger. No, but oh, I'm not shaming you or anything. But you may actually enjoy it, too. You've, um, To be clear, because the audience doesn't know, you've seen one through four and a half. And then you've seen First Contact, and you've seen the most recent reboot films. Mm. But of the original cast and such... There is much Star Trek I must catch up on. Sort of. There's a lot of bad Star Trek you don't need to catch up on. But anyway, I move. I, I will move on. I what have is... seen the Star Trek exhibit at the EMP, though. That's that fun. was pretty freaking cool. What is your fourth favorite 1991 film? Silence of the Lambs, which is available on HBO. Very cool. And speaking of those strong females... Clarice. We have Clarice. She has to... God, she has to deal with so much fuckery it's unreal she has to deal with all the men in her career she has to deal you know with father dad and she had to deal with an uncle i think she uh, has yeah. she has to deal with freaking what's his name 
Hannibal Lecter? Yes, yes. She has to deal with him. She has to deal with all the fucking prison well, prisoners on the way to him. Here's the thing, though. It's just so much. Scott fuckery. Glenn. So much. Scott Glenn, his superior, her superior, mm-hmm. and Hannibal Lecter are probably the two male figures who actually respect her. Because yes. um, Scott Glenn is almost like a father figure uh, mm-hmm. for her, and Hannibal Lecter actually sees her intelligence and respects and her as an equal. And that's why he only deals with her. Yes, which, right. So there's this interesting things happening there, mm-hmm. but at the same time, Jesus Christ, she has to deal with so much shit. It's a very um, feminist film. I don't think it gets enough credit as that. No, but there are a couple of books that I've written about it. Oh. I cannot recall them right now because I, I did let them go. Not because they're bad, but they talk about it a lot. Now, through all this crap that she has to deal with, she keeps her freaking composure mm-hmm. more than any other woman, I think, would. And that uh, there's just so much book smart, there's so much street smart, there's so, so much bravery being uh, projected from her. Uh, she is a fantastic character. And that's the reason I love that film. Plus, it's a great crime thriller in oh, God, itself. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, it's very good. Awesome. Very cool. We should show Logan that one. Let's not. <laughs> I'm not that mean. Uh, my next film is uh, my fourth favorite film in 1991. It is The Rocketeer. Oh, yes. Where's the rocket? I'll never forget that line. Directed by Spielberg apprentice Joe Johnston, who many would know from Captain America, the first Avenger. And starring Billy Campbell, Jennifer Connelly, Alan Arkin, Timothy Dalton, Joe Polito, and Terry O'Quinn. With a score by James Horner. Oh, James Horner. The Rocketeer remains one of the best superhero films of all time. Fight me. I don't care. It's fun, simple, innocent, exciting, with great characters, and Connelly looking as smashing as ever. It's a shame this film still hasn't been given its due on DVD or Blu-ray. Even the 20th anniversary um, edition lacks a single bonus feature, especially after the release of Captain America, also directed by Johnson, as I mentioned, and featuring a similar World War II average Joe hero. Uh, I absolutely adore uh, The Rocketeer. I think it still holds up very well, and I do absolutely love its score. I can hear it in my head right now. If you can find The Rocketeer, it's a great family adventure. Go check it out. Who was the woman? Betty Page? Well, so, okay. Based on. Now, remember, The Rocketeer, I should mention, is based on a comic story by Dan Dave Stevens, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. Now, he modeled the character Jennifer Connelly plays off of Betty Page. Yes. I was going to say it's interesting that, you know, you have a good point that there's no extra features even commenting on that yeah. after that documentary came out, too. Right, or there should at least be a feature about the comic, about Dave Stevens, who tragically died, I I think maybe even before the film came out, if my memory serves. Anyway, The Rocketeer, I love it. It's my fourth favorite film. My third favorite is Mississippi Masala. Oh my god, I love this. This is such a great romance. It's so hot and heavy. Ooh. Well, I think it is. It's my version, my interpretation of Hot and Heavy. Uh, it stars Denzel Washington and Sarita Shaduru. And who um, directed this? Well, I'm getting there. <laughs> it's Mira Nair. Yeah, and, it is. And another one of my favorite who appears in a lot of Mira Nair films is Roshan Seth as uh, Sarita's father. 
This film, an Indian family is expelled from Uganda when Idi Amin takes power. They move to Mississippi and time passes. The Indian daughter falls in love with a black man and the respective families are freaking out. So it's there's just there's so much tension, but there's so much passion between the two lovers and it's like, oh you you can tell they're gonna be okay, you know, like sometimes you can tell as a viewer and like sometimes it can be uncertain. It's like, no, that that flame's gonna fall, like burn out. Uh, but this one, no, there's so much it's so sexy. <laughs> so that's one a great of my favorite. Pick. And she's she's awesome she's a very strong character she is tenacious she she's almost like ariel like mm. i want to be where the people are <laughs> right 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 and it's interesting too because you know they the dad really felt you know he saw himself as ugandian and like anyone who wasn't black essentially was being told to leave the country and it's interesting because he has a very, very hard time letting go of it mm. because he really felt like that was his home. That is an excellent pick. That, that's great. I'm glad you love that film. My third favorite film, though, is City Slickers, starring Billy Crystal, Bruno Kirby, Daniel Stern, and Jack Palance, and that's Helen of, Slater. That's one of my brother's favorite films. No kidding, really. Mm -hmm. Well, it's no wonder why. It's hilarious. I love its opening title sequences, which may be one of my favorite opening title sequences. It has a cartoon cowboy, and he's lassoing the credits. It's it's a really cute way to start like the film. Is it almost like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, like their one? Oh, I don't remember. It's uh, been too long since I've seen that movie. It may be. But, of course, this is a great film. One of Billy Crystal's best films up there with When Harry Met Sally. Uh, this one in particular is about a midlife crisis. You know, he's realizing he's at the halfway point of his life. It all goes downhill from here. He's very morbid about it. His friends take him on a vacation to have fun. I'm on vacation! It's so fun. <laughs> he meets Jack Palance, who's very, like, traditional cowboy, very intimidating. But he knows about the one thing. you got to figure out what that one thing is. Anyway, hilarious movie. There's a lot to quote in it. There's a lot of fun in it. One of the greatest comedies of the 90s. I love City Slickers. It is my third favorite film of 1991. My number two is Barton Fink. Oh, very this cool. This is such a bizarre and trippy and weird and symbolic mm -hmm. and surreal mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. it is, you have to freaking pay attention yep. man, and watch it several times in order to really grasp what it's trying to say mm. and it's going to be different every time you watch it because your interpretations will change interesting so you've got john tortura who is like a favorite like he like i think my first my first introduction to him was the transformer movie oh god really but he was still fun in that i really liked him not his best no it's not and he's also i believe he's also monk's brother from the tv show monk oh okay so he's really great in that oh. I, I believe his, um, his 90s work is really his best stuff mm -hmm. oh you've also got tony shalhoub in here which uh, he's monk so you've got john mahoney you've got michael lerner you've got judy davis you've got john goodman it's it's a lot of you know it's a really fun cast it's and it's by the Cohen brothers. Most importantly. Yeah. <laughs> they get mentioned last. <laughs> 
So, uh, how to describe this film? Well, he's a New Yorker playwright and he's enticed to go to California to uh, write for the movies specifically. Mm-hmm. And I guess he goes on this journey and discovers what actually makes up Hollywood, mm-hmm. the truth. So, it's, it's very fun. Yes, that, that is an excellent pick. Um, oh, it's also available as a Criterion Oh, very cool. Okay. Very cool. I am, I'm heartwarmed to see that on your list. My second favorite film of 1991 is Robin Hood, Prince of Ooh. Thieves. This is my favorite version of Robin Hood. Damn straight. I've always <laughs> loved this interpretation of The Merry Men, which has a kind of a grounded, somber approach where it really tries to actually, like, be like what they really were historically which i've always really loved and appreciated since i saw this when i was 11 or 12 years old Uh, it has great action scenes alan rickman man he plays his third straight villain after die hard and quigley down under the dude was on a roll he is superb i've always loved his version of sheriff nottingham sheriff of nottingham the best and but i i prefer the extended edition because it, that version explains his relationship to the old crone uh, lady a little bit more. And uh, there's a, a one or two other scenes that kind of flesh things out a little bit more, make more sense in it. You can, if you see the theatrical version, you can see it's, you know, it's cut. It doesn't quite make um, a whole lot of sense. Morgan Freeman as Aziz, I think his name is. I, I've always loved. I quote him sometimes uh, from the film. What do, what do um, you use? You whine like a mule. Oh, God. All the fucking time I want to yeah. smack you when yeah, you say that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, the guy who plays Guy of Gisborne is great. His name escapes me right now. It's great at cast. Christian Slater as Will Scarlet. I, I love it. I love it, man. It's fun. And it's just exactly what I want in an adventure movie of its kind. So um, I adore Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's my second favorite film of 1991. Shanna. Hit us with your favorite film of 1991. I believe we have the same. It's Terminator 2. No! That's awesome. <laughs> it is. This is the best, best film ever. <laughs> it is definitely the best Terminator Did film. Did you know Hands that down. they won four Oscars out of six nominations? Best no. sound, sound effect editing, visual effect, and... So it's all technical best, awards. Well, yeah, they deserve it. Uh, I was going to say, best makeup as well. Knowing the film uh, for what it was at the time, none of that surprises me that it, it kind of dominated the technical awards. Mm. That film is historically Very significant special. for its technical uh, advancements. Good God, do you know how difficult it is to to film something that's reflective? Never mind, make something reflective from visual effect technology. No, it's I've never so done it. It's so fucking difficult. James Cameron, he he's not he's not someone who kind of like plays around when it comes to filmmaking. I mean, he he made an advancement already with Abyss, almost was a test run for whether or not T two was possible. He released T two, which advanced uh, technology. All of a sudden, you saw morphing technology in practically everything. You can even you can even buy like morphing uh, programs for your PC. And play around with morphine really? technology at the time, okay. and then, um, and then of course he he he, he created Avatar, right? Mm. You know, which advanced vi- visual effects and 
an advanced 3D. You know, the entire 3D craze came from Avatar. So he's um, definitely known for technical ability. Yeah, he doesn't mess around, right? So Terminator 2 is one of his first major benchmarks, mm -hmm. and I I think really advanced the series. And unfortunately, the series never came close to touching the greatness of this film. Mm. And speaking of, again, very strong kick-ass female characters, mm -hmm. we've got the Sarah, Sarah Connor, mm -hmm. uh, who is amazing. Now, a note, I much prefer the special edition version uh, DVD of this film, where it shows the uncut version. Oh, remind me. I'm not, I don't There's remember. There's a scene where Sarah Connor is like, oh my gosh, she's trying so hard to to get through, you know, because she's been put in an insane asylum uh -huh. where they're testing her and she is the doctor's favorite subject, mm. uh, Dr. Silberman. Mm. Who you see um, in the first three films, at yes, least. Yes, yes. That's obviously where he gets all his fame from, is uh -huh. from Sarah Connor. Right. And, but she's about to give up and very defeated but all of a sudden in a vision reese connor comes to her oh and they actually make love and obviously it's it's not real but it was it was very therapeutic because i felt it was so jarring that you know what happened in the first film to him that when they showed that part it was kind of healing for me oh. because i went through my life seeing terminator 2 like i thought <laughs> I didn't see the two. I thought this was the only film that exists for Terminator. And people would keep saying, I'll be back. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And obviously that happens in the first one. And so I'm shaking my head at when you. I saw the first one, I was so heartbroken because it's such a great romance, sci-fi right. romance. Yeah. It's like my favorite sci-fi romance. Probably one of the most else. significant in film history. Yeah. Epic. Yeah. Love scene. So when I realized what happened to him in the first one and then I go to the second one again, I'm like, but where the fuck is he? <laughs> it uh, was so upsetting. It was almost, I, I could do just fine with number two being the only one in existence. Oh, God, no. I need number one. Oh, yeah. But no. I would be fine if it was just number two. Oh, God, yeah. I, I, I Hard disagree. But Kyle Reese, uh, to correct you, make uh, that correction. You. Not Kyle, uh, not Reese Connor. Kyle, Kyle Reese is his name. Played by Michael Bean, who's fantastic. Love him. Um, I'd be interested in rewatching the edition because it's been so long that I really remember. I don't remember that version. Anyway, yes, Terminator 2, one of my favorite films of the 90s, one of my favorite sci fi films of all time, one of the greatest sequels of all time. Well, I should really quickly speak to the one thing that, that is significant about this film that. Um, that uh, really sets it apart and that is the father-son relationship that develops with john connor and the t-800 played by arnold schwarzenegger that really took the story to a whole new level never mind the whole judgment day armageddon stuff never mind the t-1000 straight action stuff but the heart the fact that this film has heart it's mm -hmm. not just another thriller like the original is where someone is unstoppably trying to kill another person there is actual relationship and character development in this film and i i love it as on top of the thematics that this thing's um, playing with in, in terms of our our fate and our future um, uh, and you know our choices in that. So I, I, I it was great sci-fi, hands down. I think that's a great mention about father-son 
sort of relationship. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the mother-son relationship is very important, at least the role of the mother. Can you imagine being told that how important your son is going to be in right. the future? And you're not, you're not naturally ready to make him ready for such a an event mm. and you have to figure that shit out because that is your only hope that is humanity's only hope and i just think that a mother like trying to achieve that is massively awesome 100 uh, percent, and is an interesting metaphor for what mother's uh roles actually are in reality as well so that's our favorite film of 1991. What are your favorite films of 1991? Email us at review at gmail.com. You can find me at shannapaxton.com or shanna underscore paxton on Instagram. Of course, you can go to thegibsonreview.com to find more uh, past episodes, past articles, and all the things, uh, past film faves and what have you. Uh, go to Facebook, follow us, the Gibson Review on there. I sometimes also share third-party links there. You can find me on Flickchart, the Gibson 99. I actually updated some of it today, uh, so you can see all, all the films that I've seen, except for what I've seen this year. I don't think I've updated this year on there. At any rate... Next time on The Movie Lovers, I, I, we have a lot of exciting things coming down the line. I've been doing some planning. I, you have a lot to look forward to. But the next episode, episode 42, we will be reviewing Bohemian Rhapsody. Woohoo! Which is the music biopic about Queen. And then we will be finished, well, almost finishing this decade with Film Faves 1990. So look for that episode November 13th. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying...